Support for Longform this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, one of the co-hosts of the show. The others are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hello, guys. Let's go really fast through this construction noise. Who's on the show? <laughs> <laughs> Amidst the construction noise, uh, this week I interviewed Erica Hayasaki. You may know Erica uh, from her byline in all of your favorite magazines, like the New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, Wired. Uh, she has a real eye for and talent for a great magazine story. Our excuse for talking this week, though, is that she has a new book out, which is called Somewhere Sisters. The book is about three young women who were born in Vietnam, two of whom are twin sisters. When their mother struggles to take care of them, one of the sisters is adopted by an American family and brought to the U.S. Another is taken in by her extended family in Vietnam. They are both raised in these different environments, not knowing about each other at first. The third young woman is also adopted into the American family. She becomes a kind of sister to the twin sister who's been separated from a real twin sister. It's, uh, it's a remarkable story. As you can imagine, there are huge, huge questions about identity and family embedded in this story, and Erica delves into them beautifully, and we had a great conversation about it. I'm going to have to listen to this intro again to totally unpack that plot, but I deeply look forward to this interview. Uh, we're brought to you in partnership with Vox Media. They help us make the show. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. And now here's Evan with Erica Hayasaki. Erica, welcome to the Longform Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I want to talk about your book, which I just read and which is wonderful. But before we get to the book, I kind of wanted to talk about your career a little bit first, partly because there's sort of lightly in the book, you appear a little bit both in the story, but also talking a little bit about your own background. And it made me want to hear a little bit of the story of how you grew up and how you got kind of pulled into journalism. So tell us a little bit about where you grew up. Sure. So I was born in this town, Champaign, Illinois, and my father came from Japan when he was 18 and um, married my mother. And we lived in this little town at a time when it was not incredibly diverse and there were not a lot of Asian Americans around. And, and people, when they you know, saw me, often thought, if they saw me with my mother, who's white, they assumed I was adopted. But mostly just in school, people viewed me as Asian American. And so there was a lot of bullying around that, you know, at, 
that time period. And actually, I mean, the reason I even started writing was because of that kind of grappling with racial identity. When I was 13, I started writing for like the middle school paper. And then what happened is I moved to the Seattle area. I moved to Linwood, Washington for high school. And um, my parents divorced and I ended up out there and really got into the writing uh, also often around racial issues. But I read a book when I was in middle school, like one of the first books that I really remember being so moved by, and that was Hiroshima by John Hershey. I didn't know what narrative nonfiction was, but I knew that I was completely pulled into this true story. Um, Were you assigned it in a class or did you pick it up, find it on your own? We were asked to do a book report on some event in history. And I went to my dad. I was like, what do I write about? And he's like, why don't you write about when they bombed, you know, Japan? And I didn't even know about that, really. So I just started finding books in the library. And I still have that book report from forever ago. And, you know, it was just so incredibly vivid. I didn't know that I wanted to do that kind of journalism or literary journalism or what that even was. But I never forgot that book and the writing in it and the scenes. So when I moved to Linwood, Washington, it was a very different kind of makeup within the town, much more diverse, but there were still there was still a lot of racial tension and things to write about, which I did. I wrote about them for the school paper and I was the high got into the high school newspaper and I was, you know, having a lot of issues when I moved and I threw myself into journalism. And it kind of just gave me something to do and to feel, you know, it was important. And so I ended up also getting involved in this thing called the Urban Newspaper Workshop when I was in high school. So all these Seattle Times reporters took teenagers and kind of trained us on how to be journalists at like 16. And I remember being terrified to do my first interview and I was super introverted And I remember this one journalist from the Seattle Times, like practically taking my hand and walking me into my first interview and like, just do it. You know, you just got to go in there and do it. And I did. And that was like, from then on, I just found what I wanted to do. I know it's really cheesy because a lot of people find their way into journalism in different ways, but that was something that was very meaningful and helped me kind of just figure out the world because I think I was like confused moving through it for a lot of my childhood. So you ended up at the LA Times, and did you feel when you landed at the LA Times like, this is it, this, is, this was the thing I was dreaming about in newspapering, I found what I was looking for? Yeah, that was amazing to be from this small town and then end up at the LA Times and be 21 years old and right out of college. I definitely felt like, yeah, I sort of made it, and it was through being at the LA Times that I started to learn more about long-form narrative. I think when I was on the education beat, I pitched a story about new teachers in schools and decided to follow a couple of teachers. And one of the editors paired me with a great narrative journalist who's an editor. He also edited um, Enrique's Journey, which won the Pulitzer Prize. And he, I was really scared of him, (laughs) but he like handed me a book called Story by Robert McKee about screenwriting. And it was like, you know, all these lessons apply to journalism too. 
and it was really interesting. And he just sort of taught me to think about reported stories in a different way with, you know, scenes and characters. And, and then, of course, there was another incredible editor, Steve Padilla, who's still there. You know, I just remember having conversations like, you know, I would get these weekend assignments. It was like Mother's Day and the assignment was to write about, you know, kids who are reuniting with their mothers in prison. So it's like a weekender. They send you out and you file it at the end of the day and there's your story. But like I sat down with Steve Padilla and I said, how could I make this more than just like a quick daily on the weekend? And I visited this young woman whose mother was in prison. She'd been in prison for many years. And I visited her the night before as she like picked out her clothes and her earrings. And she had these like fabulous bamboo earrings that she was going to wear into the prison. And her grandmother was like, you're not going to get those past security. And she was like, I'm wearing them. We got on the bus, rode the bus like six in the morning. It was like four hours. She's writing rap lyrics and like, you know, I'm just like following her through this whole process. She gets to the prison and, you know, sure enough, they're like, you can't wear those earrings in. But somehow, because they know her, they let her. And she goes in and she's reuniting with her mother. And it's supposed to be this sort of moment, like all of these kids are, you know, crying and like happy. And then they're saying goodbye and they're weeping. And I remember she's just sort of looking around and, you know, she was not moved. She had done this for many years and she was like looking at everybody crying and feeling like she was stronger and not going to be that kid anymore. It was sort of like a coming of age moment. It was, you know, it's not a year long project, but, you know, you're following somebody and tapping into these like human emotions or themes of like coming of age and like growing up and, you know, these little details like earrings that mean so much to a 16 year old. And I started to just really appreciate and love that form. And even though it took more time, it was hard to pull off. It's just something that I knew that I, I really appreciated reading and also writing. You've done a lot of work, I mean, then, but also since in your books and magazine work, where you do spend these sort of concentrated times, like following people around. How did you learn how to be the person who follows someone along on an extremely emotional or important journey in their life? Yeah, I think maybe because I did it starting at such a young age and really realized at that time that I could write about people that were different from me, who I would visit places that I had never seen or would never see otherwise, which I knew then at 16 because that workshop, that urban newspaper workshop, it took us to like migrant farm labor camps and they took us to just all of these different experiences where you know, they were exposing us to what it meant to be a journalist. And along the way, realized that to do this, you put on this journalist hat and you just learn how to go in and put yourself and all your insecurities aside. And yeah, you look dumb sometimes and people aren't always nice to you or they don't receive you well. And it's really weird that you're here, like shadowing this girl on the bus, but somehow she's letting you do this and she she gets what you're trying to do. And it it really became something that I'm pretty comfortable doing now. I mean, it's not always super comfortable, but I feel like I I can put that hat on pretty easily. It's not who I am necessarily naturally, but it's something I was trained to figure out how to how to do if I wanted to do this work. If I want to really tell stories deeply, like you just have to kind of listen, be there, 
and put yourself aside because it's not really about you in those moments. At what point did you feel like you could kind of take control of what you wanted to write about as opposed to being, say, assigned to an education beat? Was that true still when you were at the newspaper or, or did you have to leave in order to kind of gain that control of where you wanted to steer your interests? I think I had a lot of support at the newspaper because I became a national correspondent. I was in New York at the LA Times for several years and I covered nine different states at the time. So I would parachute into breaking news stories, you know, hurricanes, plane crashes, school shootings, all of the above. I would even get pulled to go to like Alaska to cover Sarah Palin and like whatever was going on at the time. So that was a breaking news thing that I had to do, you know, as part of the job. And then like one story that was very memorable in my career is covering like the Virginia Tech shootings years ago, one of the earlier major school shootings in flying in, um, you know, in the middle of the night, getting to this campus, swarms from of media all over the world. Everybody's trying to, you know, cover this terrible, tragic story. And so I did that. That's the job. But then having the words of my narrative editors in my mind, I thought, how can I do something a little bit more memorable? I'm here. So I stayed for like two weeks. And I just reconstructed the shooting from the events of one particular classroom in the French classroom, which was where the shooter killed himself and had the highest death toll. It was a really horrible story. And unfortunately, it's just repeated itself too many times in the years since. But I found all the different people who survived or chose not to go to class that day for whatever reason and followed them all the way to the funeral of the professor who was the heart of this class. And I wanted to stay till this funeral it was two weeks later. But that was something that I had to pitch to an editor, convince them that I want to stay for two weeks and do this. And so I got editors to sign off and let me do that. And they were supportive. So that was what I would call narrative on a deadline. And, you know, I wanted to also stretch and try even different things. And that's when I decided to teach. I went to UC Irvine. I moved back to California, started teaching in this literary journalism program and trying to write for magazines and to write books. And the magazine world completely ignored me and rejected me for years. Just didn't care that I had written for the LA Times or any of that for almost a decade or that I was a national writer. I I really didn't even get replies. (laughs) I didn't know what I was doing. And I just sort of felt like I started over completely. I didn't really have connections in the magazine world. And so I just started writing for places that would let me write. I wasn't often paid very well. Sometimes it was online places. I wrote Kindle singles. I know that you know what that is. Yeah, yeah. There was a real heyday for Kindle singles there for a little while. It was. And then I started writing more science stories. And it's not because I was ever dreaming of doing science or that I had some amazing science background. It was just because I realized that science publications don't often have journalists who will put a narrative element to the science pieces. And it's a little more complicated. It's hard to unpack all the science. It's dense. So I would look for features in the science world. And those seem to be easy to get published and build off that. So, But it took years. It took years for me to get into magazines after having a long career in newspapers. 
Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly the voices sounded totally natural and human to me this listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free now normally you get a two-week free trial but listeners of long form get a whole month free go to listening.com slash long form or use the code long form at checkout listening your life just got a lot easier Looking back at your stories, I mean, you seem so interested in memory and identity. Like you have these amazing stories about the way memory works, false memories, people who are exceptional at remembering things, people who have no episodic memory. And then you have stories about identity and people trying to find their identity or lose their identity. There's a great California Sunday story you have about someone losing their identity because of a brain deterioration and just transforming into an utterly different person. So that made me wonder like how much of those questions are driven by what you can place versus the kind of stories that are stuck in your head that obsess you that you were trying to find answers for and you found those stories through your own questions. Yeah, I think those were stories that were through my own questions. It's just like with journalism, you can follow these like, big, huge questions you have inside of you around identity and memory, for example. It wasn't like I got to write whatever I want. I still had to sort of figure out how to tailor things to a magazine because certainly nobody was just saying, hey, come write for us about whatever you want. There was an art to the pitch and to figuring out what could be a piece for an editor and a publication. But that being said, I am interested in identity and memory. Memory I'm so interested in also from a journalistic standpoint, if you think about Hiroshima, it's a reconstructed narrative. You know, John Hershey went to Japan and he was not there when the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. He interviewed people over a couple of weeks, but it reads like he was there. It reads like fiction. So then the question is like, always for me, I often think like, how do how do we trust our memories? How do we trust what the people we're interviewing remember? And then I think about scenes too, because I did write a story once about a woman who had no episodic memory, which is the ability to remember the scenes of your life that you think are the pivotal moments that have shaped you. And we often think that's what makes up a life, the birth of our child, the marriage, the first kiss, whatever that is. She didn't have access to any of those scenes. I was very, very curious about that. So my instinct was to shadow her, to profile her, to understand what that was like from her point of view. What was really interesting about that story was that she was, she lived a great life. She was in the moment. I took her to a movie, actually, the ending scene. You know, always 
orchestrate ending scenes. But in this case, it was, you know, a different kind of reporting experience because you weren't diving into her memory and getting all the memories. I had to like witness her in action. I couldn't reconstruct scenes from her past, but we went to that movie Inside Out, which is about memory. And because it was another question, like, do you remember the scenes of a movie or a novel? And she couldn't. But when I was sitting there at the end of the movie with her, I noticed she was crying. So she was so in the moment with this movie, but wasn't going to remember these scenes after. Yeah. And that's why it fascinated me to bring us to the book. One of the opening, it's not the opening scene of the book, I don't think, but very early in Somewhere Sisters, you you describe one of the kids, and we'll in one second we can talk about the overall what the book's about, but a kid trying to remember scenes that she has only seen in photos and video. And that tension between her not knowing what's real and what she just learned from a video that was taken of her when she was younger. And it made me think that's kind of like one of the themes of this book. So maybe you could describe the book a little bit. Yeah. So the book... I started reporting it like five years ago. I am a mother, and so I had a surprise twin pregnancy <laughs> and ended up having identical twins. But along the way, of course, as a journalist, you know, you follow whatever your interests are, and you follow what you can do to it. I couldn't get on planes and go do reporting. And then I pivoted and started looking into twin research, wrote some pieces around twins, is something I could do while doing everything else. And wrote a story about twin science, and that led me to the story of Isabel and Ha, who were born in Vietnam, separated at birth. Isabella was adopted by a um, white American family that lived in Illinois, not far from where I grew up. So I was automatically interested from an identity standpoint, being Asian American, living in the Midwest, growing up at that time period, she's younger than me, but I was curious. Like I felt like, huh, I, I wonder if her experience was similar to mine. And then Ha was adopted by her aunt and her aunt's partner and raised in a village in Vietnam. And for most of their lives, they did not know of each other or know much about each other's existence. And then the adoptive mother in the U.S. realized there was a twin and decided she was going to try to make it her mission to reunite them. But the story is not the twin reunion story that you maybe see on TV. It's also a story that's deeply about adoption and transnational and transracial adoption and history of adoption in our country. And there's also questions around twin science in the narrative and also lots of constellations of family members that I wanted to also include in the, in the in the storytelling. So it took a long time. Also, we had a pandemic and I was raising my kids and there was a lot happening. So it was hard. <laughs> yeah, I think five years was warranted in this case. What was the process like of convincing them to be the subjects of a book? Because you spent an incredible amount of time, it seems, you know, trying to capture their story. So this was reconstruction, a lot of it. They were already 18, so they had been reunited at 13. And so I came in later, so I'm pulling from those skills of learning how to reconstruct, you know, John Hershey lessons, right? Like you weren't there. How do you go back and make this all feel real on the page? Of course, people that you're interviewing, you know, you almost have to teach them in the way that you teach students or 
you know, you have to teach them like, here's what I'm trying to do. This is why I have to spend all this time asking these questions and going back over these scenes. Like oftentimes you get the story, but you haven't filled in all the details. So you have to go back and identify what scenes are crucial and then go back and start asking more questions about them. What did you remember in that moment? What did it look like? All the sensory details. And those often don't usually come through in the first interviews for me because I'm trying to figure out what's the story. And then I go back and I start to think, oh, this is a scene that I need to really flesh out and ask more questions. But of course, you have to help them understand that process too. And like, I'm asking you these questions. We're going to go over this again so that I really can help people feel like they're there, almost like a documentary following you around in this moment. Some of these scenes were quite traumatic. And so you always have to be so careful with, you know, how you prepare people that you're writing about for what they're sharing, how you walk them through, how you help them feel comfortable. And were they prepared for, I mean, as you say, the story is is complex. It's not the, oh, they had a happy reunion. They, they've discovered each other. And now they each have the other half that they were missing, you know, that sort of thing. It's not, that's not what it is. And so was everyone prepared for that? Everybody in the story that was interviewed had a sort of different perspective on this narrative. Everybody knew, I'm, I'm reconstructing this one time period of their life that's going through childhood to college where all of these things are happening. I didn't know all how complicated it was, to be honest, going into it. I, you don't always. You don't know all the family dynamics. You don't know all the things at play. I just knew sort of the core of the story. And so I will say that the hardest part was that some people didn't see the story in the same way as others. And it wasn't that memories didn't match up. It's the perspective on how it all happened. Certainly, it was hardest for the adoptive mother who kind of saw this story in one way. And when you look at it from her perspective, she was trying to reunite these girls. When you jump into the perspective of the birth mother, the first mother in Vietnam, or grandmothers in Vietnam, or the sisters themselves who were quite young and not always emotionally ready for all of this and grappling with a lot of things that were happening like bullying at the same time you're going to get a different feeling reading their perspectives and then reading from the perspective of the mother so i made that choice to write from these different perspectives and it makes it complicated because you kind of want to sometimes follow one main protagonist through a narrative i get that this was not going to be that because it was important to me to get that constellation in there and to help people understand that you can all look at this story and know the basic timeline of events and what happened. But depending on where you're standing and what your circumstances are in the world and what you're, you know, you're, you're going to see it differently. And it's, that's, I think that's interesting and important because not everybody's seeing what the other person's seeing. So I wanted to kind of give it that multi-dimensionality where you're seeing it from different points of view. And yeah, for um, for the adoptive mother in particular, it was really hard to have that mirror held up. Even though it was thoroughly reported, it's hard. It was hard for her, I'd say the most. Yeah, it had that Rashomon quality to it that really pulled me into it. But then there's this question of where your perspective comes in. You're looking at it, and there's this science in it too. Uh, just to take one example, following up what you were saying, the way the adoptive mother 
exposes the kids to the fact that they may have thought they were orphans, but actually their birth mother is alive and surprising them with that. And then the research sort of shows this is not the way to do this, that you have to be thoughtful or you could traumatize people. And how do you approach sort of knowing all that, but also telling the story of someone, in this case, the adoptive mother, who is actually trying her best, but is slipping up in ways that even she might recognize now? Yeah, yeah, super hard. This was hard. And then, <laughs> and that so I had a lot of readers too, and I'll say that I put myself through an intense kind of sensitivity read critique with people who were oftentimes writers, journalists, researchers, and transnational adoptees and even oral historians of the Vietnamese diaspora, like I was it, and and science, science writers. So I went through this 2-hour critique session talking through these different elements. And there were moments where people had these debates, like when they're making a decision, maybe come in and like talk about what you think about that, kind of hold her accountable in a way or point that out in your voice. And I thought about that. And I also thought about one of the critiquers who's a journalism professor at Northwestern, who is a transnational, transracial adoptee and wrote a book about it. And she said, you know, I get what everybody's saying, but um, I would let the action speak. And I took that advice and I took it seriously and I, I let the action speak in these cases. But my director over at the Literary Journalism Program, he often says that structure is an argument. The way you structure a story is an argument in itself, even if your voice is not coming in and saying, here's what I think about all this. But structurally, there were moments where I could bring in the voices and elevate the voices of experts or adoptees, researchers, people who understand the trauma of reunion and have them speak, or also who understand how approaching raising children of color in this country from what is known as like a colorblind mentality can be very harmful. The experts can say that. And then you're reading the narrative and you can come to your own conclusions because it's complicated. It is complicated going through it because you have these mixed emotions. You understand everybody is trying to do their best to raise their kids. At the same time, people operate with blind spots. That's why they can't see the other side of the narrative. And so that was important to me to kind of also structure it in a way that helped you understand this history, this social context, what the experts say also hopefully hold empathy for people in the story even when they're flawed and that's what makes people on the page real we're flawed and we have to understand that in our writing too and I tried to do that without making people into villains or heroes certainly not heroes either that was very much a um, intention and that idea of the sort of myth of colorblindness is that something that you saw in this story sort of going into it or is that something you kind of like uncovered through the reporting and realized from talking to the girls that this is what they experienced? I think it was something that I came to understand with the girls, with the sisters, through our conversations around identity. But I also came to understand it with my own life. So I was thinking about having a white mother who was raising a child who presented to the world as Asian and like all of the issues that I had with that. And we never, and even the conversations I've had with my mother in recent years or arguments where we're just not on the same page with things. And then she's, you know, at some point said, I didn't think about what it would mean to raise 
an Asian American daughter. But these conversations have been forced into our households even more in the last couple of years. And that was all happening as we're having these discussions and interviews. And I'm getting to know the sisters at the same time. And we're kind of sharing experiences too. And it was all sort of part of the reporting. When I said earlier, like theme comes, it bubbles up in the reporting. It's not something I intentionally came in and said, this is what I'm going to do. But I I certainly paid attention and tuned into those themes. And it's happening when we're having major discussions around race in America, Asian American identity, Asian American hate crimes, all of these questions. I, you know, And I could relate to a lot of it. So it made the conversations around that natural. But I also knew how complicated it is because You love people who have blind spots and, you know, sometimes they raise you. And like I said, they're trying their best. And that's why it made it particularly hard to report, I think, in those certain ways, because, you know, you're just dealing with very sensitive issues. And I understood that. There's one very minor character I want to ask about just because it's a topic that comes up for me sometimes, too, which is just like interviewing difficult people or dislikable people, because there's one guy in there who kind of like says the quiet part loud a couple times. I don't know how to describe him. He's like the husband of the birth mother's sister. You're talking about Dick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm interested in that moment where you have to interview someone who is saying things that you personally either just find unpleasant or all the way up to like offensive and like how you deal with those moments and approach that situation. That happens all the time, I think. And it's interesting because, yeah, with that particular case, he was making these really offensive statements about Asian women. And he was a character because he was like weirdly and deeply involved in the process of reunion for these sisters. And I generally don't go in and argue with them. And I didn't with him it wasn't going to get me anywhere at that point. Like I, to make my point, I just, and, and actually I did fact like his, everything, you know, we went through the fact checking and he, he doesn't go back on anything. So he doesn't think like, Oh, I didn't mean to say it that way. This is how he talks. So it's like, you just let the people talk. It was that whole idea of like letting people talk and people can come away and they have their ideas of who this person is based on how they talk. And you don't necessarily need me to come in and make an essay about it, but you do select sometimes these moments that are telling. And that is where, you know, there's argument in a structure. Even when you're not in there in first person, the scenes, the moments that you select, your subjectivity is conveyed in a way because you've been alerted to this and you feel like it's relevant to put into the story because it gives context for how, what was happening at the moment or whatever that might be. But I'm not necessarily in every case going to go in and tell you how to think about it. And how did you, for the kids, I mean, they're not kids anymore, but kids in the the context of the story, I mean, you're really getting inside their heads in terms of you're telling the story, not just of what they experienced, but how they experienced. And you have some parts where you're telling the narrative and you have some parts that are sort of in their voice where it's like, it truly is like a short section of them saying what they remember about that. And I'm, I'm wondering how far did you have to get in terms of going over the story again and again before you feel comfortable saying this is what they thought in this moment? Like, how do you get to that point where you're confident that you can write those parts? So the oral history sections were important to me to let them speak in their own words. So I did incorporate those. 
And I know this is not the traditional structure. Sometimes you are told in journalism to not like let the people that you're writing about have too much influence over their stories, right? Or to share too much, right? Because they'll try to edit. But in this context, these young women, they are adoptees, they've been through trauma, and they're not public figures. And I wanted to write it in this way. We'd gone over this many, many, many times, but I did like sit down with them, read them their sections. And I've done this in the past, especially with younger people who have gone through trauma and like talked through, you know, are you going to be okay with this being out there in the world? Like, I know it's hard and this is what we've talked about. It's harder to read. And we did that. And so, yeah, I felt confident. I mean, I, I knew the fact checking is right. That's a key part of it. But I think because as journalists, we're in this position of power because we have the ability to share these stories widely and we're sort of putting it all together in the structure that we see fit. And the people in the story, you have to think about who has the least power in the story and you don't want to be taking their story. You want them to have a role in it, to feel involved. It's their story too. I don't subscribe to the belief all the time that it's our story because we're the journalists that wrote it. Like, especially when people are sharing these really intimate, deep, painful moments, that is not my story. That's their story that they've collaborated in a way with me to share through these interviews. Yeah. And I would recommend Sandia Dirk's The Narrative Power Edit, which mm. is available on a Google Doc online. Actually, I have it linked to on my webpage um, in resources because she talks about examining the power within your story and considering your own power and bias and then how much voice are you giving to the people who don't have power and how much voice are you giving to the people who have the most power or the systems that have the most power and if it's a lot of talking from the most powerful systems or people and not a lot from the least like maybe you need to refigure how much you know everybody is speaking and toward the end of the process when you have your drafts and you've got all the interviews all all the information I did really look at that and think about that too. You know, it's it can be very extractive. It can be taking. But at the same time, if you want to do a narrative that makes people feel moved to tears or to feel like they're really there, you want those details and you want to get that close. But they also have to be okay with it, I think. I think if you're a good person as a journalist, you are going to grapple with these issues. And now, I mean, the book's out. Given that you've been through that process, what does the family think? Like, how is the family experiencing it? And what's your relationship like with them now? I definitely don't want to speak for the whole family because there's a lot of them. And so I have heard just even today, I've communicated with Isabella in the book, who is just feeling very humbled and amazed that people are paying attention. So she's excited and have been able to speak to recently but there's a lot of different family members with a lot of different feelings. And so I'm not going to speak for them. And I do know that it was hardest for the adoptive mother to go through everything and to read the book. And I'm, you know, I'm just hopeful at the end that people can see all the different perspectives represented and appreciate the reporting that went into it and that I'm representing everybody's truths the best that I can. And some people see other people's truths differently. And how about you? Do you feel like this book in particular, this story in particular, has changed your outlook, either as a reporter or as a person? I mean, I certainly learned so much about adoption, and a lot of that research was 
really eye-opening. As a person, I think, you know, the conversations that I had with the sisters over the years took me into moments of my own life and childhood that have given me sort of, in a way, permission to write about some of these complicated issues in my own life, not necessarily about me, but to examine that through stories in different ways. In the next, you know, year, I have different ideas that I don't, I would never, they, I don't think they would have ever been approved five years ago, even, but now they are, and they're allowing me to examine these questions that I really started with when I was like 13, but I actually did get away from because it just wasn't easy for me to pitch those kind of stories even then. But this has brought me back to like why I started, I think, when I was very young. And the conversations that I had with these sisters over the years helped me get to that point too. So I'm appreciative to them for that too. Well, I can't wait to read those stories when they come along the next next year. And And thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week's long form podcast. Thanks to Erica for coming on the show. Her book is called Somewhere Sisters. It is out now. Our editor this week was Jackie Sajiko. Megan Valley did the show notes. I am Evan Ratliff, your co-host. My other co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. The show is produced in partnership with Vox. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks that you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.